Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, Stu, and for Mockingbird arranging this. I wish I could have been here the entire time, uh, but I am hosting uh, a board meeting at the diocesan office yesterday and today from a group called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And uh, they're my heroes. Uh, one of my heroes there, Boz Chavijan, founded it. And they're all over there figuring out what does it look like to do um, caring ministry for survivors of abuse. And I had to leave that to come here, happily to be here, to talk about law and gospel as pharmacon. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, but uh, just to enjoy how weird this is going to be, as a, I'm an Episcopal bishop-elect who did my Ph.D. dissertation on Calvin, and I'll be talking about a Lutheran theologian named C.F.W. Walther. So there you go. Uh, it's like a nerd setup joke there. Um, <laughs> but thank you. I, back in the day, I used to be on the board of Mockingbird, and uh, when I left Charlottesville, Dave moved into that office. So the connection to Mockingbird goes over a decade. And uh, also the Zoll brothers and the Zolls, uh, Mama and Papa Zoll, it's good to see you guys. So let's jump in. Um, too often, Christians and churches do harm to survivors of abuse. The experience many survivors experience is disgrace where Christians give them platitudes, suspicious questions, surface empathy, shallow theology, and simplistic notions of forgiveness and reconciliation. Carol Adams, who is a survivor advocate, interviewed survivors of abuse and said, before you reached out for support, who did you think would be the most helpful? And got a list. First were church and clergy. Second were therapists. Third, medical providers. Fourth, someone in the legal system, and then five was other. So before you went and got help, who would be the most helpful? And that's the list. And then she said, okay, now that you've reached out, who is actually the most helpful? Church came in last after other. There's a problem. That's why rightly distinguishing law and gospel is urgent, especially with regard to abuse. And the reason I'm using the language of pharmacon is because I want you all to have a new term that makes us all sound smarter. Um, Plato talked about it, Derrida, philosophers, but pharmacon is a word that means drug. Now, what kind of drug? Is it a drug that is cure or poison? Is it promise or is it peril? Is it healing or is it threat? Christians too often apply a heavy dose of law with no gospel to survivors of abuse, and then apply gospel with no law to offenders of abuse. It's law and gospel in that order, and they go together, but there is a little bit of magic on how you apply it, and to the point that Martin Luther said, whoever can rightly apply law and gospel like really well, they deserve to be called a doctor of the church. It's not an easy thing, but what happens is misguided and distorted uh, applications of law and gospel often drive survivors away and embolden offenders. What's needed is proper application of law and gospel. The gospel is pronounced to crushed people, and the law is pronounced to secure sinners. That's the whole point. It drives us to our need for Christ. 
The grace of God is not cheapened by the cruel withholding of grace to survivors. The grace of God is not proven by foolishly allowing perpetrators to have access to harm more people. C.F.W. Walther, and we'll jump into Law and Gospel, says this, You are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you preach the law to those who are already in terror. You are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel if the word of, in the word of God if you preach the law to those who are already in terror on their account of their sins, or preaching the gospel to those who are living securely in their sins. C.F.W. Walther is a legendary Lutheran theologian and pastor. His seminary lectures on law and gospel were delivered in 1884-1885. By the way, I even checked, are, are we cool with Walther? Okay, I, I just thought we were. I just don't want to go like, there's nothing worse than showing up and I'm like, Walther, 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 and all the Lutheran people are like, he's not our guy at all. What are you doing talking about him? So, <laughs> I like him. Uh, and he's influenced, he has this book called Law and Gospel, How to Read and Apply the Bible. And he goes through 21 ways law and gospel has been misapplied. Really helpful book. And so the law tells us what to do. And if you followed Mockingbird, you know this, but just to be really clear for those who might be new, the law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what is done for us. The law condemns, it kills, it brings death. That's from the Bible. Not because anything's wrong with the law, it's wrong with us, but the gospel pardons. The law is everything in Scripture that commands. The gospel is everything in Scripture that promises. One of my friends, Mike Horton, says this, God directs us by his law, but delivers us by his gospel. The gospel is never an exhortation for us to do something, but an announcement of something that God has done for us. We're called to obey the gospel, which is embrace it, but the gospel itself is the good news about what God has done for us in Christ. So what's happening with the church? Why church comes in last after other? Part of that is because we're being Americans, not necessarily because of our Bible or our theology. What I mean by that is that there's something distinctive about American culture for survivors of abuse. Social psychology research has done, they've done research on attitudes toward abuse survivors, and they've noticed that individuals in our society have a prejudice about survivors of abuse that are negative, negative views. And so it's, it's just kind of a collective victim-blaming default mode that Americans tend to have. The reason I keep on saying Americans is clearly within the heart of just humans in general, but there's something distinctive about Americans probably because of our fetish with safety. And because sexual and intimate partner abuse is a form of victimization that is stigmatized in American society, many survivors suffer in silence, which only intensifies their distress. And there seems to be a societal impulse to blame those traumatized for their suffering. And one rationale that people have brought up on this kind of social psychology is this. And right or wrong doesn't matter, I just find it interesting, is one rationale is that this provides non-survivors with a false sense of security if they can place blame on the survivor for what they did. They, they clearly had to do something for that to happen because if, if 
abuse is just out there, like one out of three, one out of four, one out of five, all the stats, um, I might not be safe. My kids might, be, might not be safe. I need a narrative that helps me feel like I can be in charge of keeping myself and my kids safe. Clearly, that person did something. Now, no one's rationally thinking that person did something to deserve it. They think, well, they made unwise choices, but, but that's the logic that's at hand is that the prevalence of abuse scares us. It makes us anxious. And so there's default of finding out well, where, who, who's to blame for this, and it's usually the survivor that gets blamed. Add to that the typical or not typical common response um, of the dynamics that take place from trauma and abuse. Trauma results in significant medical and mental health conditions, drug, alcohol abuse, violent tendencies, anger, promiscuity, early pregnancy. So survivors of abuse are three times more likely than non-victims to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse drugs. So you can see that if there's a default, maybe they did something to, you know, cause some of the abuse or at least make it more accessible. And then when they do things that are, uh, uh, that, that are embarrassing, that are problematic, then the social derogation goes to them. And when this happens, survivors of abuse suffer profound spiritual damage when the church turns to them and Christians are tempted to apply the law to those behaviors without realizing that they're only treating the smoke and not the fire itself. And in contrast to survivors, who survivors have things happen to them, and many times they respond in ways as coping that are frowned upon and are easily judged. Then you get offenders. Offenders are majority are religious, highly skilled if, uh, at mouthing the words of repentance and convincing clergy not to take strong actions against them. And as a result, pastors pronounce the gospel to offenders fully intent on continuing their sin while pushing those who have been offended out of the church. All right, let's get to applying law and gospel. That was, you know, we, we, we kind of scrubbed in for surgery and uh, let's pick up the scalpel and see what it looks like to dive in. How do we properly apply law and gospel to survivors of abuse? The big idea here is compassionate care. That's, the goal is compassionate care. And we will also look at law and gospel for offenders in, in a bit. One of my favorite stories to talk about law and gospel and just the good news for survivors is my friend Shirley. She lets me use her name. She likes it when I use her name because when I tell her story, evil doesn't win. And she wants uh, the idea of hope and healing to be prominent. And uh, so she came into my office years ago and uh, told me her experience of abuse and the effects of it. Um, I want to not be too intense because I know there are survivors in the room, so I don't want to activate you or trigger you, but her abuser, she was re, her, her abuser used to abuse his daughter. His daughter at 12 went out and found a replacement, which is a common behavior. She brought her girlfriend, Shirley, in at 12. So she would be abused instead of her, self-protection. 
she would go out and practice a piano. She was playing Amazing Grace while her dad was sexually abusing Shirley. That kind of story. She, Shirley, is thinking, okay, what? She comes in, she says, okay, I, I need the grace of God. I said, yeah, you do. Um, and I like talking about it. Let's see what happens here. And she said, okay. Um, so I know I'm forgiven for my sins of being a victim. So wait a second. Um, that's not how this works. I was like, you were sinned against. It was a crime. And she got angry at me. She said, what are you doing telling me that I have nothing, I didn't do anything, that I don't need forgiveness? And I said, why are you angry at me saying that? And she said, you're unplugging me from the grace of God. You're un- I need the grace of God, and the way we get the grace of God is my sins are forgiven. And you've unplugged me. If, if those sins against me are not sins for which I need forgiveness, then how do I get the grace of God? Which I really admire the move she was making. She was determined, I'm getting good news. I'm going to get promise. And the only avenue, she had one lane, which was my sins are forgiven. So it was fun when I got to tell her, your sins are forgiven, but he, he did some more things too. <laughs> uh, he conquered, Jesus conquered Satan's sin, hell, death, and the grave. He bestows to you a new identity. You're not damaged goods. You're adopted child of God. And uh, your shame is covered, and you're allowed to be angry, and you're not forced to forgive. Like, I started going through the effects of the gospel, and she said, let's, let's explore this. That's what I'm looking at is so many survivors think the only— they don't know how to connect the disgrace that they've experienced and the grace of God because the only pathway they've had is forgiveness of sins, which is a great pathway. I'm not knocking that. I'm saying it's, it's more full-orbed than that. So, Shirley needed the grace of God, and she found a way to get it. The gospel has a lot to do with what victims can relate to. Christ was a descendant of sexually exploited women. It's in his genealogy on purpose. He was always uh, around sexually exploited women and people. He was beaten, neglected, humiliated. He understands uh, being betrayed, being mocked, being humiliated, being lied about, uh, the horrible things. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Christians will find a clear course of action after exploring law and gospel, which is the liberal use of the gospel and a sparing use of the law. And let me give you seven ways that this plays out. Um, and what I'd like to try to do is uh, leave some time for conversation and see. So um, seven things on how does long gospel apply to survivors. One, avoid the temptation to focus on the survivor's sin. Because of abuse, the stats I gave you, there's alcohol abuse, um, drug abuse, um, misuse of sex, misuse of food, disordered relationships with certain Things, substances, ways of getting control. They may have problems with anger or relationships or a criminal history or there's new mental illness. There's so many things. And then you get to church and you get church gossip, you get shame, and then you have pastors who are looking at the speck in the victim's eye without even looking at the gaping hole in their soul. And so we have a mess. And you have Jesus who came to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted, and the gospel is. Uh, the only tonic that that abused person actually needs that they probably haven't really even heard. So avoiding the temptation to focus on the survivor's sin, which is the smoke, not the fire. 
Too many times I've heard as a minister someone coming to me and saying, yeah, I thought the church would be great, and I got in there, and uh, because my life's a mess, they were, they were giving some good advice, but there was no good news built in at all to what I actually needed to hear that got below the surface. Two, assure the victim of Christ's empathy. A victim of abuse is going to be questioning, which is a normal and good thing to do, what's God doing in all this? Is God good? That's actually wise to ask those questions, to, to, to not do denial. And because of theological statements made by the offender, uh, sometimes, you know, I'm, God wants me to do this for various reasons. I, I um, you know, Dirty things happen to dirty children, and I'm doing, I'm doing this as a part of God's judgment for your filth and that kind of thing. I mean, just horrific things that get into people's minds and souls. It's really helpful to tell survivors that what happened to them is a sin and a crime and a violation of the law. It's a twisted theology. It's a toxic theology. Telling the suffering that Jesus understands maltreatment is unbelievably powerful. One of my favorite things as a priest is during Holy Week, when you start reading the passages about what happened to Jesus and talking with people and saying he was physically harmed, he was spiritually abused, harmed verbally, socially. I mean, all the experience of a survivor, Jesus has experienced all of them. And for them to see how closely Jesus identifies with them, especially during Holy Week, is really moving. I say it to them at some point when I'm talking to them in a pastoral care setting, but then when they actually are there in the horror of what happened to Christ is read to them and sometimes depicted, uh, you can, I, they frequently have come up and said, I get it. Like, I, I see it now. There's a beautiful uh, article by B.B. Warfield called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. B.B. Warfield, you know, he wrote, he's known as being like the inspiration of Scripture guy and, you know, authority of Scripture, which is some fun stuff. But this wonderful article on the emotional life of our Lord, he says, we learn about God by looking at Jesus. Compassion is what we see. And he explores the emotional life of Christ. So assuring the victim of Christ's empathy is easy. Just read the Gospels and you will see where his tenderness and patience and compassion always go. Three, applying the gospel compassionately. So avoid temptation of focusing on their sin, assuring them of Christ's empathy, applying the gospel compassionately, and do it liberally, not begrudgingly. Don't qualify it. Of all people, they're the ones, the gospel doesn't come with qualifications, but of all place people, they don't need it qualified. They don't need to be reminded, this gospel's for you, but remember, it's not a license for sin. Like, stop pulling the punch. Just let it go. Let the Holy Spirit cares about their sanctification, hopefully more than you do. But applying it compassionately without pulling the punch, without reminding them, victims usually have overwhelming, extreme guilt over their, the sinful ways they've responded to being sinned against. And the pastor gets to display the compassion and patience of our Savior. Four, assist the victim in assessing appropriate 
medical and mental health. I think this is a fruit of the gospel, that if we believe the gospel and all of its, um, the gift of the gospel, uh, then attending to the full person, seeking mental health providers who are current on the literature of trauma and abuse is a fruit of the gospel. Five, refraining from platitudes. The gospel allows us to not do good advice platitudes, but to really go below the surface and go, go for the soul of what's happening. Biblical platitudes don't help with the complex spiritual struggle that survivors are experiencing. Platitudes, and I'm going to give you examples, because just saying refrain from platitudes isn't really that helpful, um, but platitudes communicate insignificance. The moment of disclosure is a key moment. That's why I like talking about abuse to not just leaders, but Christians, lay people, and clergy. The moment of disclosure when someone tells what happened to them is a key point. It's the most significant point for that person's hope and healing. If the response is positive, generally healthy, uh, it puts them on a trajectory. And just so think about this. Think of someone who is, needs triage and they're unveiling a wound and you actually have the hope of the gospel that you can respond to in this tragedy. And they probably haven't trusted anyone for, I've heard, I've heard when I tell ministers, hey, preach about sexual abuse, bring it up, see if they trust you. I had one, one of our priests in the diocese seven years ago say, I got an old congregation. I don't, you know, I think they've told all their stories. I said, give it a shot. And he came back in tears and said, I mentioned sexual abuse once. Just said the gospel's for those who have experienced sexual abuse. Three women came to me in their 70s and 80s who never told anyone for decades, like 60 years. If you have a wound that you've not shared for 60 years, and then they unveil it, or six days. I mean, the passage of time doesn't really matter that much, but the, the joy of being able to say, God loves you. There's hope and healing for this. Let's get to work on it. Let's go. So if you give a platitude to that moment, this is what happens. I know how you feel. I understand. You're lucky blank didn't happen. It'll take some time, but try to get over it. Why don't you tell me more details about what happened? It's kind of voyeuristic. Don't worry. It's going to be all right. Try to be strong. Remember, out of tragedies, good things happen. God's sovereign. You need to forgive and move on. Calm down and try to relax. You should get on with your life. It was so long ago, why are you still letting the perp hang on and control you? You're probably overreacting. Everyone experiences bad things. You're not that different. Your anger, depression, anxiety, fear are irrational and a result of your sinful response. And these are all things that survivors have told me that things have been said to them. Or these. Here's the beautiful part. See, every time I talk about abuse, this is the part that sucks talking about abuse. And, uh, and people send me stories and, and tell me stories. So when I start just looking at these words, there's people's faces connected to them. But these are also things that people have said, these are some of the most helpful things that have been said to me. Will you tell people so they will say them? <laughs> so I'm passing it on from survivors. And here's the other thing. This is, this is also really encouraging to me. They ask survivors, what's, what's the most helpful thing someone can do? 
and number one, far and away, was being listened to and believed. That's encouraging, because if, I can't tell you, my, my wife knows what to do in these situations because she's a survivor advocate. I'm intimidated, and I've written books on this, and people come to me and say, here's the story, and I'm thinking, what do I say to that? What do I say now? Um, so I usually just go to my wife and ask her what I should have said, and I'm sometimes I get close, but it's intimidating. And what's really encouraging for you to know is that listening to and believing them and responding with compassion don't use words if you don't have them. But that's what they need. They're not asking for a lot, and that's encouraging. So though I am intimidated, the good news for all of us is that if you've been a recipient of God's patient compassion in your life, you know things that you could say to them in that moment because you've experienced it. Um, here we go. I'm sorry this happened to you. It took a lot of courage to tell me. How can I help? I'm glad you're safe now. It wasn't your fault. Your reaction is not an uncommon response. You didn't deserve to be treated like that. You're not going crazy. That's a normal reaction to abuse. It's okay to cry. Six, don't make forgiveness a law. I have never, ever had a survivor of abuse come in who's a Christian and not say, I know I need to forgive. I've never, ever had to tell a Christian who's a survivor um, to forgive. They've heard it. They hear it all the time. That's usually the first thing people say to them who are other Christians. I actually have slowed them down and said, how about we table that? Let's get to the forgiveness part, because that's the magic of it. It's not minimizing forgiveness, it's actually maximizing it. Let's count the costs so we know what we're forgiving. And let's look at our cosmic treason against God to see what he has forgiven. There's parables on this. There was a talk about this this morning, about forgiveness. But turning forgiveness into a law does not help. It's actually the magic that takes place from the gospel that someone can look at another sinner and say, I forgive you my favorite story ever. And she wrote her story in Rid of My Disgrace. It's Mandy's story. And uh, she was assaulted by a group of men on her 21st birthday. She's not sure how many. And years later, we were praying, and uh, she started praying for the perpetrators that assaulted her, that they would be forgiven so she could worship Jesus with them together in heaven. That's a miracle. There's no technique to get to that point. That's a miraculous work of God to work in someone's heart that you would pray for the forgiveness of the person and people who have caused the most spiritual emotional damage in your life. That's the miracle of Christianity. And so to take forgiveness simplistically um, and just kind of turn it into some expectation strips Christianity of the joy and seeing the work of the Holy Spirit to move people to that forgiveness. We can explore forgiveness in a little bit. So that, those are seven there. Last, or that was six, seven, seek the lost. 
waiting for people to appear to you in church um, may happen, but there's ways of being active. Uh, conferences like this, the healing service that they do here, where they actually say, let's talk about abuse, and then we're going to heal, uh, talk about healing for it. Um, but what are active ways to proactively preach about this, to talk about this? Um, and if we're not heeding Christ's example of binding up the brokenhearted and the harmed and the abused and the most vulnerable, we're missing out on the, the heartbeat of where God too little for too long has been done and done in the wrong direction. And so seeking the lost is an important opportunity. Okay, it's 1.30, got plenty of time. Um, so those are the seven. We can come back to those. Uh, I want to now pivot. So applying law and gospel to survivors of abuse, the theme is compassionate care. Applying law and gospel to perpetrators of abuse, the theme here is responsible care, but it's still compassionate. Uh, and empowering perpetrators is ungodly. Christians are often looking for redemption stories where they don't exist. Too often churches see redemption as only a linear story. I sinned, I've been confronted with grace, and I am instantly transformed. That's a theology of glory. That's not how this works. The theology of the cross needs to be applied to this. Perpetrators understand and manipulate this fact and often garner support and sympathy from the church when claiming that they have been falsely accused or that they've immediately changed. And I'm all in for immediate change. Um, it's amazing how many perpetrators suddenly become uh, the theologians of glory, though, and immediately changed. When perpetrators are empowered by not being held accountable for their offenses or when their abuse is minimized, they are unlikely to actually find true repentance and freedom. Empowering abusers is not the most loving thing for them. I'm not saying this as a survivor advocate. I'm saying this as a pastor who has had known registered sex offenders in church and being their pastor. So I'm saying this in conversations with them, not because I care about abuse and those, those damn perpetrators. We got to really stick it to them. It's not the most loving thing to enable people who are wrapped up in misuse of power and control. This is what Walder said, do not proclaim forgiveness of sins to impotent and secure sinners. That would be a horrible mingling of law and gospel. It would be like stuffing food into the mouth of a person who is already filled to the point of vomiting. So what are ways that this could play out? And I'm going to end with um, dignity of the offender, just so we're clear. This is not a, I'm not piling on, I'm not intending to pile on. Um, trying to do long gospel. They might not be doing it right. And apparently, Luther said, it's really hard, so if I'm wrong, then uh, we'll talk about it. One, ask about the offender's willingness to address the needs of the survivor. It's a good place to start. You've offended in this way. Have you addressed the needs of the survivor from the damage that you've caused? I have a friend who threatened, verbally threatened, financially threatened um, other leaders in the organization where he served. He was blind to it until he was made unblind to it. And then he spent, he would fly back, he moved from that city, he would fly back to meet with the people 
with who, to whom, against whom he sinned. I was trying to get my prepositions right there. Against whom he sinned. And he would fly back and say, if you want to bring someone with you, I want to hear it so I can apologize. I sinned in person. I'm not going to email or text or call. I'm going to, I'm going to repent in person. And then people would, they would come in with hot anger. And it was always disarming because he would say, I've done it. And I've done more. I have my list now too. Imagine how amazing that is for both people in that meeting, for, the, for the, the offended to give their list and him say, you're right, and here's some things I remember too, and I would like to be freed from the burden of this guilt also. I've asked God to forgive me. You don't have to respond now, but would you forgive me? The joy of the offended forgiving that man is what moved him. He flew back to that city numerous times. And then some people would say, you know how much counseling I went to because of you? And he said, no, tell me. This much, how much did that cost? I'll pay for it. I'd love to pay for it. Like, that's the miracle of forgiveness. Determine the extent of the offender's cognitive distortions. This is simply done by saying, asking if they hold themselves fully accountable for their sin or crime or whether they believe the survivor is to blame in any way. Three, remind the offender of the law. The law part of the law is following the law of the land, Romans 13, 12, and inquiring as to whether they're going to turn themselves in. I had a young man years ago confess uh, sexual assault on a date. He said, this is what I did. That's a sin and a crime, right? I said, yes, it is. I said, I feel horrible. Can I be forgiven? I said, absolutely, you can be forgiven. It's your, your, that's what Christ is doing, forgiveness of sins, and you're declared not just forgiven. You're not just getting back to zero. If you're in Christ, you're declared pure, perfect, righteous, and holy. So do you want to go to the police before or after absolution? And he said, after, I think I need the power from absolution to go. In absolution, he went, we went to the police station together, pulled on himself, the police went to her house, asked to press charges, she said no, and there was an appropriate form of reconciliation being done there. Four, avoid distortions of grace. There's a difference between godly repentance and worldly sorrow, and they're really helpful. Um, I've worked with both. I've seen both. Um, the three, three men who were tier three registered sex offenders, just the highest tier in a church in a different state, the policy by the the church followed the government policy, but the, the, the local policy was they need to go to a service without anyone in the, any children in the room. Uh, people need to know that that's the only service they can go to, and people need to know that registered sex offenders are there. Just don't point out who they are. Um, we're not doing the scarlet RSO on them. Um, and so they had to sign in with uh, someone on church staff. Every time, they, as soon as they showed up and as soon as they would leave, they'd sign out. That was the worst part of my Sunday. I got it. They got it. But to having to look at three men who were repentant 
showed the fruit of repentance, had to go in there. It was a, it was a ritual of shame every single time. And to look at them, and I still remember two of them came in together, and they just kind of put their head down. Their bodies changed. Um, it was grace and practice. Paul wrote about the German word for what happens when people go to church and they get bricks put in their backpack and they get hunched over. I don't remember what the word was, but I got to see it where they showed up and they got in there and the shame folder was there and they kind of hunched over and had to sign their names. And I said, I'm sorry, I know it's required. And I do think it's important. I'm not minimizing it. I think the consequences of that, of just the reality of the safety. And they said, oh no, we, um, we don't trust ourselves. We like, we like, we, we hate this, but we like that you actually take this seriously. Um, and I said, it's the Lord's table. You're not JV. You're not second class. It's the Lord's table and you belong there. You're a brother in Christ. So I'm saying these things, talking to men like that. And then I've had the horror story of others who've just done the opposite. So what godly repentance looks like is those men were focused on God. They hated the sin and what it was doing to them and to others. They took full responsibility for it. They were concerned for their victims. They patiently accepted consequences, and they submitted to the discipline of the state. And their hearts were changed, and it produced fruit, as opposed to worldly sorrow, which is, and listen to them, when people start talking about their story, when, when the victim thinks that they're the victim, is self-focused, they hate the consequences, is self-protective, they blame others, so-and-so did this, they, they're impatiently demanding trust and restoration. You should trust me, I'm changed. Like, well, I don't, um, so I'm not going to. You don't get to tell me how I'm gonna trust you. They criticize the disciplinary process, that's my favorite one. Um, and then uh, unchanged hearts that don't produce fruit. Five, you can ask tough questions. That's what the law would look like. There's a way to apply the law without being harsh, but asking honest questions. Have you informed your spouse or your children? Have you informed the medical provider of the child that you abused? Do you hold yourself responsible for the conduct? Have you turned yourself in? Um, an offender who is confessing abuse but is unwilling to address reality may be seeking forgiveness but uh, is there's no indications that they're intending to uh, reform uh, their behavior or intended to repair the damage they've done. And then last is seeking true confession. God's kindness leads to repentance. It's not loving to give them a quick out in the sense of covering over it. Let them repent because that's where the absolution is. Uh, what's the most loving thing is the question. What's the most loving thing for a survivor? It's a little bit easier. What's the most loving thing for an offender or a perpetrator of abuse? Is it loving, and this is from those men, it's not loving to let me be in a church service with children when I'm sexually aroused by children. It's not loving to give me full access and uh, of misuse of control of power when I can't use it and I've misused it. Uh, it's, what's the most loving for future potential victims? What's the most loving for survivors who are in the room? Um, so asking the question, what's the most loving, actually helps with regard to true confession. So compassionate, 
and responsible care for survivors, compassionate, responsible care for perpetrators. But let's talk about the dignity of the offender also. They're, they're image bearers of God and should be treated with the respect as image bearers. Second, we still regard repentant offenders as sheep in the flock who've been entrusted to us to tend. Doing it wisely is the key. We should not treat anyone as a wolf. That, that term gets used way too easily. Uh, they're not a wolf among the sheep until proven at the final stage. And there's wise ways of actually doing that, um, not just full access to the church. I had to go to one church where they actually had a level three registered sex offender, two accounts, violent sexual assault against a minor that he admitted to, and they wanted to be a place of grace, so they let him lead worship at the family service. But you see the logic. He was the one who dug in his heels. He's like, I'm not doing, he's I only have one contract or one covenant, the baptismal covenant. I'm not doing an attendance covenant here. Talk, versus those other three who said, we're sexually aroused by children. Don't put us in a vulnerable place. That's not loving to us at all. Um, so it's, it's not proof. I like that a church wants to be a place of grace. I wish more place, churches wanted to be a place of grace. There's a way of being a place of grace in a wise, helpful way that's loving to him and loving to them. This is why Paul reminds us that we must be patient with them all, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, even the idle, disorderly, and undisciplined. Paul meant it when he wrote that in 1 Thessalonians. So due to the nature of a known sex offender's sin and crime, the church has to discern what does freedom and participation look like. And we can, I can tell stories when we get there of uh, what that might look like. So last, I just want to say a final word to perpetrators and a final word to survivors and pray, and then uh, let's talk. Perpetrators are invited to repent and enjoy their sins being forgiven and being declared righteous. It's one of my favorite things about Sunday is being able to exhale myself but to be able to pronounce forgiveness and absolution, I, I mean, part of the fun thing about being up here and we get to do it is we actually get to see your responses to it. I see some people just hunkered over and crying and mourning and other people kind of, oh, the sigh of relief that they're forgiven. The call to repentance isn't a call to shameful repentance, it's a call to freedom repentance and enjoying the declaration of your sins being forgiven and your declared righteous, trusting Christ and that he will empower you, that he will fight against the sin that wants to destroy you. And we get to treat you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Final word to survivors. What happened to you was not your fault. You're not to blame. You didn't deserve it. You didn't ask for it. You shouldn't be silenced and you're not worthless. You don't have to pretend like nothing happened and nobody had the right to violate you. You're not damaged goods. You're the victim of sin and a crime. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God demonstrates that he is for us, all of us, survivor and offender, not against us. Everything we have as believers has been granted to us because of Christ and what he has already done for us. And so for all of us, God's blessings are freely ours in Christ. 
to our pain, shame, rejection, sin, and death, God says you'll be healed. To our shame, says you can now come to me in confidence, you belong here. To your rejection, survivor or offender, you're accepted. To your lostness, God says you are found and I will never let you go. And to our sins, he says you're forgiven and I declare you pure and righteous. And to our death, he says, you once were dead, but now you're alive. I'm going to close in prayer, praying first the collect for the church on page 816, and then the third collect for Sunday, page 218. I'm telling you that not so you can, you can pray along. I'll pray, but if you want to know what the prayer is, that's where it is, 816 and 218. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray for your church. Fill it with all truth and in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it's an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.